standard issue for all women. Hello, Jen here to tell you about this week's episode of The Sunday Chops. And happy Easter, if indeed you are celebrating the, I don't know, resurrection of Christ or chocolate on this holy day. Or, you know, if you're just having a nice time with your family, I hope that you enjoy that as well. Or just, you know, enjoying the bank holiday weekend. First of all, let me apologise if you can hear my family, as in my daughter Lyra, who is currently downstairs shouting the numbers 1 to 15, but very happy to exclude 11, 12 and 13 every time. Don't know why. We'll work on it. In this week's Chops, I had the absolute delight of chatting to Iranian-American Dina Nieri, writer, activist and teacher, who's come back on the podcast to chat to me about her new book, Who Gets Believed When the Truth Isn't Enough. In the book, Dina examines what constitutes believability in our culture. And I have to say, it was an absolutely fascinating chat. We touched on a lot of different systems and the way believability impacts how we're seen, such as the medical system, the judicial system, the asylum system, which is one that is obviously particularly dear to Dina's heart. Uh, We also chatted about the current situation in Iran, as well as the UK's proposed small boats policy. We talk about this quite a lot on the podcast. Obviously, the issue of displaced people has been around well, forever, but it's one that isn't going anywhere anytime soon. And if you listen to any of this or you've been reading some of the headlines recently about the UK's small boats policy and thinking this is preposterous and needs to stop, for a start, you can make a donation to a charity that supports refugees such as Choose Love, which you can do at chooselove.org or for absolutely no pence you can write to your MP and tell them how absolutely abhorrent you think the proposed changes are if indeed you do. I'll get off my soapbox now and let you get on with this week's chops. I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed chatting to Dina. I'm joined on the Zoom by Dina Nayeri, writer and author of the new book, Who Gets Believed When the Truth Isn't Enough? Dina, a fascinating subject. Thank you very much for coming to chat to me today. Thanks for having me, Jen. It's your second time on the podcast. So, I mean, that in itself is always nice because it generally means you didn't have a terrible time the first time. (laughs) I had a great time. It was so fantastic. I still remember it and it was several years ago. Good. All right. Well, that's brilliant news. So I hope I can keep you on side that you'll come back next time. (laughs) Could you start off by telling us a little bit about the new book, please, Dina? Sure. Well, this book, it kind of sprang out of an obsession that I've had since I was a kid. I guess, you know, from last time I was a refugee. When I was eight years old, my family fled from Iran. And then we were two years kind of on the way until we arrived in America. And then came kind of a long period of assimilation. And during this time, I was young, I was between the ages of eight and 10, and very impressionable and starting to realize, you know, and how much it matters the way people look at you. And, you know, I had been aware that my mother was so well respected in Iran and and then over the refugee years, less and less, you know, and she and we also were degrading in some way. We were waiting, becoming more nervous. Our clothes were becoming, you know, worse. And then we arrived in America where we were absolutely at the bottom rung and my mom was regularly dismissed and distrusted. So for me, this obsession came early of why is it that some people are so easily dismissed and why is it some are kind of just embraced and and waved through the doors. And and then at the same time, I was very much obsessed with gates and gatekeepers and getting into places and things like that for the same reason. I was aware that our asylum interview, whether or not we were believed, had determined everything. But to make a long story short, I mean, though it was born of that obsession, it came from my research 
you know, with refugees in recent years that I've been doing, just listening to their stories and trying to use my skills as a writer to translate those stories for a Western audience. And just kind of being aware of this Western storytelling mode that I have that maybe they don't and they don't have in their asylum interviews. And then I took that and I uh, kind of took it out to all vulnerable people, started researching things like the wrongfully convicted, why were they convicted, um, you know, people in medical settings, people of color who are routinely disbelieved, dismissed, and and a variety of other people, just putting them in contrast with all of those people that come from the places of privilege, who are waved through the gates, and just asking the question, why? Like, why do we believe some people and dismiss others? I'm speaking to you the day after the former Prime Minister Boris Johnson gave evidence at the Parliamentary Privileges Committee over allegations that he misled Parliament, which he says he did, but not deliberately. So this is really interesting to me because this idea about, you know, what we tell people who gets believed, it is the, the basis for our entire judicial, legal systems, political system, etc. They're all built on this kind of notion of belief, right? Um, mm, people cool. tell us stuff and, and we choose to believe it and that informs you know what happens with those things but our inherent and conscious or unconscious biases obviously massively are going to sway our views on who's believable right yes exactly i think one of the things that shocked me the most in researching this book and i guess i had always known but really saw it and and many lawyers and professionals confirmed it for me is that all of our systems you know, depend on individual judgments, you know, Uh, there is nothing fair about it when you have many different individuals with many different biases making decisions that are supposed to be uniform and that are supposed to be based on actual, you know, facts and the weighing of evidence. Mm. You know, why should it be, for example, that in the U.S., judges that are in, you know, Republican districts would, you know, routinely Uh, rule differently on asylum cases than judges who are in, you know, kind of more liberal democratic districts. That shouldn't be. They're they're judging on the same laws, right? And it's the same in in the UK, for example, in in the Home Office. Why should their decisions kind of shift one way or another depending on the people in power? It's supposed to be an unbiased system. Um, So, of course, we know that individual uh, biases and individual politics and individual fears and hopes and leanings, all of that plays into the decisions of all of our bureaucrats across the board. And of course, the lower down you go, the more the bureaucrats are just performing a function, for example, asylum officers or low level nurses or various, you know, like housing workers and social services workers and stuff, the less they're in touch, I guess, with the philosophy of what they're doing. And the more they're ticking boxes and and, rep- and responding to incentives, the more like their own biases actually play in. Like, for example, if someone comes in with all the boxes ticked and they still want to dismiss them, they always have the I don't believe it card. They always have that I think this person is inconsistent. I think this person is lying. Um, and that happens a lot in the asylum system. But I think probably also at that lower level, what is actually quite terrifying to think of, and I say this because when I was a student, when I was 20 years old, I worked for a well-known high street bank in, in the summer in their debt collections department so people would phone up people who were in arrears on like their mortgage or or the credit card or whatever they'd phone up and then someone like me who had potentially been out all night drinking doing whatever like living their best life as a 20 year old in Brighton as a student and then I would be the person that would have to deal with them and you know I was not a responsible person at that time in my life and Mm -hmm. I was being asked to do actually a very responsible job. And I think the the terrifying thing is that actually 
at that kind of level, we're not even necessarily talking about belief. We're talking about like that judgment might be based on whether or not they've had a good day, whether or not they had a good night's sleep. Yeah, absolutely. I heard that all the time from, you know, kind of people undoing some of these kind of bad decisions. Like, for example, the people working at the Innocence Project or various NGOs and things here in in the UK, you know, that just the notion that if you click with that person and just trigger something good in them, that could turn the whole thing around. And that very much depends on whether or not they're having a good day or bad day. I mean, I'm kind of thinking of of, of various stories in the book. This happens a lot with doctors, you know, mm. if they come on a particular day with a particular, like if you have a pain, you know, that's familiar to you, if you had bad menstrual pain yesterday and someone comes in with, you know, bursting ovarian cysts, you are more likely to believe that person because of the fact that you just felt it yesterday. You know, that's exactly what it felt like. I mean, that shouldn't be. And then, of course, the whole good day, bad day thing. I think one of the things that really is frightening about it is that when we are having a bad day and when we are responsible for processing a lot of vulnerable people, you know, often we'll show empathy or or someone will get through to us and we'll congratulate ourselves on doing good for that person. We will absolutely forget the dozens and dozens of people that mm. we're sure we're liars because we're just, you know, kind of wearing that lens. Um, and we're completely unaware of it. I think for the most part, we are very much blind to that, to the fact that we're looking through that particular lens. And I think talking to people, it really scares me. There was a there was an asylum officer, an anonymous HOPO, you know, home office presenting mm. officer that I spoke with for the book. And, and she told me a story that really got to me um, about how she had you know, Middle Eastern des- descent in her family, and she understood kind of various cultures and, you know, social norms and things from Afghanistan. And, and there was this couple who had come in, they were telling this story about being persecuted for a love affair, and, you know, not being able to go back home because of this love affair. And there are other, you know, officers who disbelieve this, because they're like, Oh, so you barely met up with this person, or you only met them in a car, or like various details just were not believable to an English person. And just in that moment, she happened to be in the room and say, No, 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 wait, this is how people conduct love affairs there. I mean, like, I can vouch for this, I've seen it. And if she hadn't seen it, in her own life, she too would have been among the many people who dismissed this story, but she was able to just out of complete randomness and accident be there to say, no, no, this happens. And so, you know, to advocate for them at a moment when nobody else would, I mean, so it makes you just imagine all the people who didn't come across a person from their own culture in that particular office who could say, no, no, that's not a lie. You talk about medicine as well. And and you, yeah. you mentioned it just there. And basically the idea of getting a doctor to to take you seriously and and performing in a way to kind of to to get the desired outcome for yourself yeah and in the story of who gets believed historically women fare quite badly here right yeah I mean women you know you have that whole the the old kind of hysterical woman trope people still use the word hysterical you know like medical offices I've only I've only recently begun to see the word hysterical put in quotes when people have no other word to say and they'll like just do the little air quotes you know but I've seen a lot of people just unironically without any self-awareness 
call someone, call me hysterical mm. for being just a little bit angry. And and there's no kind of examination of the history of that word. And, you know, even what it means, I still have to teach my students. Sometimes I always do this thing where I'm like, um, you know, what does hysterical mean? And they kind of look at me blankly. And I'm like, okay, what is the surgery for the removal of the, the womb? And they're like, hysterectomy. Oh, what? What? Yeah. <laughs> like, they put together the word hysterectomy mm. and hysterical. And that's where, you know, the root word kind of hits them. And they hadn't learned this before, you know, that this is a specifically gendered insult. And it's meant to say that we are not allowed to have big emotions, big emotions come from, you know, our womanhood and our our failings, I guess. And I think this still this word is casually thrown around when women come in, ironically, when they come in with pains that have to do with being a woman with the womb Mm. and with, you know, all of these pains that are unfathomable to even the most um, educated and trained men. Um, Of course, some of the most sympathetic and understanding and kind of the doctors who really listen were actually men. Um, But that's because they had trained that out of themselves. They understood that there are pains they will never know personally, and they are just going to have to listen to the patient. But there's plenty, even women medical professionals who don't, who will discount the pain of women, especially women of color, and who will say, if someone says their pain is at a nine, they'll say, well, you know, that sounds like a seven or six. Whereas they would never do that to a white man who comes in because so because they have this stereotype in their mind that white men, you know, of particular backgrounds are stoic. So yeah. if they are crying with pain, they must be in real pain. It's across the board, isn't it? With women, it's sort of like, so there's there's obviously medicine. It, sexual assault cases are the sort of classic example, really. He said, she said, and, and, and you know, nine times out of 10. 99 times out of 100, in fact, if you look at the statistics of, of rape convictions in this country, he is believed over she you know and it's also it's a tale as old as time like witch trials like you know it goes back why are women so inherently unbelievable to people in positions of authority because the people in positions have traditionally been men <laughs> because we go what <laughs> i mean i think one of the biggest things i learned from this talking to various people and i'm trying to make some meaning i suppose across all the interviews and all the conversations is just the the simple fact that we believe what is familiar. There's a story in the book about this wonderful doctor um, who spoke to me and, and, and he's a man and he said, the fact is that when if a 13 year old boy comes in my office and he says, you know, he said a 13 year old boy came into my office the other day and he said, you know, he was all sheepish and he, and I told him, you know, tell me what happened. And he said, I sat on one of my balls. (laughs) <laughs> and, he, and he said immediately I understood not only the pain but the yeah. humiliation and also I had done it before yeah. I was taken back to a moment in my own adolescence and he said all I wanted was to help that boy because I knew that there there was not even a question in my mind of what he was going through the fact is that pain was familiar mm. that story was familiar and when something's unfamiliar to us, even if we're extremely empathetic people, you know, we have to go through a process of believing it. And that is a disconnect. You know, it's many writers, Sontag and Elaine Scarry and all that have written about how the pain of other people is just unfathomable to us. It's, it's, it's difficult to believe. I mean, it's the first moment. It is not equal to our pain. It has to be a lie until we get to the place where we can imagine it. We, we can um, kind of turn on our imagination and, and feel that pain with them. So, but that familiarity is such a first order criteria for believing that, you know, you ask, why are women disbelieved? Because of the fact that for, you know, hundreds of thousands of years, 
it was the men who make the judgments Mm -hmm. and they're the ones who create the systems and it is made for them and based on, you know, their experience of this world. So it's how the words like hysteria came to be. So going back to that idea of, I guess, experience and uh, and performance as well, yeah. I'm guessing that culturally quite a lot of the same biases are going to apply, right? So women, children are less believable. I guess whoever is sort of perceived to be like the, the bogeyman or whatever in, in whatever country is going to be less believable. But there are also yeah. differences in, as you sort of pointed out earlier, there will be things that don't make sense to us from a different person's culture and different ways of telling a story as well, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that I was really surprised by, and I don't know if, you know, I think there are definitely all kinds of, you know, activists and, and charities trying to change this. But I was just surprised that particularly in asylum officers, that they're not trained in cultural modes of storytelling. Because, you know, you do often hear, and, and you know, there was a, a lot of conversation among the lawyers about how you do hear in canteens and in, you know, places where home office people gather, that a lot of times people say, I have an instinct, I just know he's lying. I just know when someone's lying, you know, or I have a way of knowing. And all of those ways of knowings and shortcuts are all completely rooted in the way Western people perform, mm. you know, and present themselves. One asylum lawyer in Amsterdam told me, He's like, well, you know, one of the things I do, I train my clients to tell stories the Western way, you know, and we're here in Holland. So I train them to tell stories the Dutch way, which is incredibly direct. And he said, one of the things that one of the the group that gives me the biggest problem is guess who? And I'm like, who? And he's like, Iranians, (laughs) you know, I am Iranian. Mm. And I knew, I just knew what he was going to say. But and I said, why? And he said, because, you know, you ask an Iranian, tell the story of why they escaped why they left. I mean, this is a very crucial question in asylum storytelling. Why did you leave? Mm. And the thing that they want in terms of asylum rules is simply like this idea that you were in danger, you know, and you can't go back because your life is in danger, right? But in the Dutch culture, you even want something even more direct. I mean, there's not even that much room for subtext. You literally need them to say, I was in danger and going to get killed. The Dutch are direct. Whereas the Iranian, you ask them to tell that story and they won't start, then this is his word. He's like, they won't start at the beginning of when they got into danger and they won't start at the beginning of their general troubles with the government and they won't start at the like beginning of their birth. They will start at the beginning of the universe. <laughs> <laughs> That like that's where an Iranian starts the story. And I told him, and I'm like, do you know why that is? It's because we when we're children, every single story begins with a beginning of the universe rhyme. You know, it's a cultural thing. Yeah. There is a rhyme at the beginning of every story um that is like it goes it goes yeki nabut khoda hishkas nabut which means once there was one person and one person wasn't and except for god there was no one that i think culturally is supposed to put your life and this story into context it's very unwestern in that it's not about the life of one hero who has yeah. all of the agency who goes through the world you know with the with the kind of power of their convictions and through cast aside obstacles it's about a world in which there are all kinds of greater powers you know the universe is long a life is short it's all you know about perspective and humility and context and children are taught that in every single story 
all the way back. So imagine you have a 60 year old, you know, or 70 year old grandmother coming through to the West for the first time, having fled, being asked for it by a Dutch man, forget all the gender politics and age, mm. being asked by a Dutch man, why did you leave? Well, she thinks it's the height of arrogance to start at the beginning of her own story. So she thinks she's being terribly concise if she just begins at the start <laughs> of like the, the, the troubles with the West yeah. and Iran's like 1979 revolution or whatever. Anyway, the point is culture shows us what a good and believable story is. And our culture tells us what humble story is and what a moving story is. Another example, for example, the Iranians are dramatic. Now, as as an English woman, I, I assume, you know, your background is English, right? Mm, yeah. if, if, for example, a modern English woman, if some man that you had just seen once in a market came to your door and ripped off his shirt and declared his love for you outside. You know, you'd call them the, the I mean, Dana, chance would be a fine thing, but uh, yeah. no, it would but seem I, quite intense. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, but you know, but Iranians, like they love drama. And I think probably a modern Iranian would also call the police. But the point is, it seems a little bit less melodramatic. Mm. Um, there are dec- big declarations of love, you know, instant falling in love. That kind of stuff is not as cheesy in Iran as it is here. And and of course, these cultures are, are emerging and you don't want to make blanket statements. But but my point here simply is that something that seems like a melodramatic performance of mm. pain and grief to one person seems like is an absolutely honest way to express that belief to another person. And there is no training in this in places like the home office. You know, they don't understand how to translate Iranian truth, Iranian pain, you know, Chinese or Sri Lankan or like Sudanese or any of these mm. kinds of things and performances through the lens of their own culture. And that, by the way, is not even taking into account the ways you can sound like a liar because you have fear of your traffickers chasing you, because you have shame about the kind of stuff that you have been through, especially having been raped, because you have shame and fear over things that are absolutely like drilled in your head as being wrong, for example, being gay, mm-hmm. all the misogyny from back home, the the, the shame, the trauma, the way your trauma memories are stored, all of that stuff will also make you sound like a liar. So look at what we're dealing with here. Like if there's no training on how to listen to someone else's story. You've obviously written a lot about your experience of being a refugee. And Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you if you have thoughts on, I I can imagine what they are, but on the uh, small boats policies that are being spoken about in the UK at the moment. But also one of the points that I think people get stuck on quite a lot when it comes to asylum seekers in the UK, and I think even quite liberal people get stuck on this, is why here and i think this is a this ties in to this point about believability why have people not stopped somewhere else first i think one of the troubles again with the way we listen to people is that we apply our logic to their Mm. situation without even bothering to imagine what would you do you know like so imagine all the different things that could happen along the way. I mean, I should mention, I don't know the statistics of all of the, you know, kind of routes that people take. Yeah. I don't think routes should matter, you know, because I think these are... And to be clear, yeah. neither do I at all. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I just say this is a point that comes up quite a lot. Exactly. Let's use our imagination. And mm-hmm. I will add to this experience I have from what people have said to me. Okay. 
let's say you go through this harrowing journey, you know, and let's say you escape from Iran. I'm kind of using as one particular story that I know of. And, and you have particular people chasing you. I had one family who was, you know, related to a moral police officer that was vengeful and coming after them even outside. By the way, a lot of times smugglers continue to do this and stuff. So the danger does not end once you've left the country. Let's say you survive the boat trip, you end up in Greece. You know, you go through all the processes in Greece, you end up there languishing for years and years and years. People find you, the people back from back home. You have nowhere to go except this camp where you're absolutely vulnerable. You can't find a job because of the economy there. You have to run because someone is after you. Where do you you go to the next country? Next country, you still don't have a job. You don't have food. Here's the thing, though. You were an engineer back in Iran, right? And you speak English and you have skills and those skills are deteriorating. And maybe you have a cousin in Brighton or something. And you think what I'm living through now is hell. The person knows where I am. I don't speak this language as an adult. My children are starving. Their best years to get a really good education are being wasted, course you get on the back of that lorry from France or wherever and and try you know try for this country where you could have a normal life now funny enough that particular story is one we condemn because we think oh economic you know reasons and all of that but the fact is the reasons are complex and none of us would accept years stuck in these in-between countries you know not being given any kind of status the possibility to work um, you know at the mercy of bureaucrats whose language we don't even understand forms we don't understand like there, there are a thousand reasons to go for another country. Sometimes it's because you have someone there. Sometimes it's because of language. Sometimes it's because you think the process there will be more sympathetic to you or a particular lawyer there has decided to help. We can't, we can't judge these reasons from our very privileged kind of perch with our wonderful passports here. Mm. Um, and that's what gets me about this policy. And on a larger scale, by the way, I should tell you that I find the policy abhorrent because yeah. it, it's such a blatant shirking of our responsibility that we agreed to in the Refugee Convention. Like, why should countries that border the conflict areas have to take more people because they pass through them first versus mm. us? You know, we're an island surrounded by water, so we can suddenly protect ourselves by making a boats rule. And by by protect ourselves, I mean shirk our responsibility and our fair share of, of asylum seekers. When really, like we're, you know, we're one of the richest countries in the world. We have benefited from a lot of the conflicts that have caused all of these people's lives to be absolutely wretched. So why shouldn't we give a little bit more and take our fair share of people? Why should we be drawing these lines around ourselves? And also, like, again, we are forgetting once you get into a boat, a tiny little boat mm. with your family, I mean, do you think you really have that much of a choice? Which makes me really think that one of the things that a lot of the NGOs are saying, which I think they're absolutely right about, because they are speaking with all of this hands-on experience. And the first thing they say is, that's not going to stop the boats. Because if you're there and you see it, you see like. You know, it's the last option. This is the thing, actually, one of the things, apart from the fact that it's repulsive and the hatred that it deliberately, you know, look, it's it's so irresponsible as well, the rhetoric around it. Apart from all of that, apart from the fact that I'm completely and utterly morally opposed to what is being proposed, is they know it's not even effective. Like, the the point of it, it's just a dog whistle. It's like, look at the refugees, don't look at us. Don't look at us. Don't look at what we're doing. Look over there, there's migrants, they're coming to take your jobs. That's the point of it, because they know as much as anyone else, you're already not supposed to come here on a small boat. Like you're already not really supposed to do it because it's not a safe, you know, it's not a safe route. So you're not supposed to do it. People are doing it out of desperation. So they know full well it's not going to stop anyone. 
And how callous to like close doors to things like just summarily say, if you come on a boat, you will not have access mm. to, you know, modern slavery protections. And yeah. like, Are you kidding me? Yeah. How, what about, you know, who knows what forced that person on a boat? But I think the fact is the forced is the right word in every single way. This is not a choice and it's not an easy choice. And the language of the these kind of new rules are, are really callous and stunning. Just the solutions that they come up with. And you're right that it's all about deflection because the fact is if we actually said okay you know here's what you should do you should come in because it's not illegal to enter a country if you immediately claim asylum that's the whole point of the refugee convention come in don't you know be undocumented go and claim asylum as many people have Mm. then you are allowed to work okay this is not going to take away anyone's jobs what it does is give us kind of uh, options more work done richer kind of industries look at what happened it allows people Um, to pay tax as well which if they're stuck in a refugee camp they can't do because they can't work so they can use their skills and 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 they do different kinds of work. Like, look at what happened, for example, after Brexit, everybody complaining that they could no longer get extensions on their house built because mm. they weren't enough workers, or, you know, various other things. I mean, these people actually add a value. Mm. They add their skills, you know, they provide services and things that we want. They enrich our economy. And at the same time, again, like you said, they pay taxes. So let them do that instead of languishing and wasting their talents and um, allow their children into school, etc., until their cases go through the system in the way that they're supposed to. And and there's nothing scary about this. What's scary is all the tax shelters and the billionaires Mm. hoarding money. And have you read Oliver Bullough's new book? It's called Butler to the World. I mean, it is frightening. It's about how the UK creates all these financial systems to help the very, very wealthy and often very, very wealthy bad guys hide their money. He would say it more eloquently than I would. But I mean, I think that is where we need to mm. look. We're looking to, at people who are destroying our lives, not the refugees. They're just an scapegoat. Don't we, Rishi Sunak, mm-hmm. heir to a billionaire's fortune via his wife, obviously. Anyway, one of the things I wanted to ask you about was that we live in this kind of like post-truth era. And what mm. is happening now in the world is like kind of terrifying. We have actual politicians saying ridiculous things like people are bored of experts or like, you know, people are not, no one's interested in the truth anymore. What we're interested in is our emotional response to things, right? Okay. And that becomes the basis of all arguments is how we feel about something, not what the actual fact of the matter is do you think this has always been the case if we look at history has it always been thus or is the sort of rapidity of how we share information now contributing to dangers around that well i mean i think yes there's some dangers that are increased because of that but if you look if you do look at history you'll see you know a lot of the huge political movements of say the 20th century were because of people's emotional responses to a particular you know person or a particular idea which often was built on a lie it was kind of fabricated and meant to like incite response and uprisings i think as humans we naturally do this we respond with things like fear or hope which is what we're looking for you know in other people when this is one of the things that i discovered as i was researching this is it just seems as though we listen to stories for things like whether or not people have need or whether they have potential whether they spark our fear or spark our hope you know these are emotional responses we're not listening for the truth we're listening to that particular trigger in ourselves Mm. Um, but you know you asked about technology and social media and i think one problem there is, first of all, there's no expert filter through a lot of information. And, and and at the very least, at least 50 years ago, what we had is on 
really important issues like things like vaccines or unemployment or actual numbers of things like migrants coming through. The only source you had that from is the expert who then was vetted by some news organization who then spread. The, and now we have just all kinds of things disseminating into the world. And one of the challenges we have is educating the next generation on how to read data, how to look at information, how to look at the source of information and judge it as truth or not. Obviously, that's harmful. I think it's much, much more scary when people then get positions of leadership mm -hmm. who find this to be a tool. You Going know? back to Instead Boris Johnson. Finding Exactly. Instead of finding this to be alarming, they're like, oh, well, look at this, though, I can just create my own story and, you know, spread mm -hmm. it to the world. And then they really, truly trust themselves. I think the scarier people are the people who think, well, you know, I know what's best. But in order to get to my end, which is really good for everyone, I just need to lie to these people because they're just sheep. And so we just need to get them to respond to this particular stimulus and that stimulus and, and, and get us into power. And then we'll do what's best. They're not even aware of their own capacity to be human, their own capacity for error and for like self-preservation and for selfish greed, you know, which is, of course, at the end of the day, the thing that drives them when they are in positions of power, the, the desire to keep that power, the desire to enrich themselves and so forth. I think one of the most dangerous things is not seeing their own fallibility in this way and thinking of these modern, dangerous modern technologies as a tool. Obviously, your family fled from Iran when you were a young child because of the threat to your to your parents. Yeah. So you will have a pretty good understanding of the, the political system in Iran and what's going on at the moment. There's been a lot of unrest in Iran uh, over the last... Decades but, too, yeah. But, but specifically because of what's happened to Masa Amini. I feel like that was quite a big story at the time it was reported on a lot and that has kind of like dwindled away a little bit I mean lots of other things happen in the world I suppose you can understand why that happens but we're not hearing as much about it at the moment I wondered if you had any kind of insight into what is happening there at the moment people are still trying to get free people have been trying to get free for 40 years I think the thing that the Western world started to understand, you know, in the last couple of years, maybe actually even since 2019, is that the Iranian people do not want an Islamic Republic, they don't want a theocracy, they want a secular democracy. And there is absolutely nothing wrong with acknowledging that. I think there's been over the last 40 years, a lot of reformist talk, you know, this idea that we let the people choose their own government, and we, you know, work with that government. And, and, and I think the problem there is that it legitimizes a very brutal, brutal theocracy and a dictatorship, and that the people did not choose, and that the people do not want. So I think now it's time for us to listen to the Iranian people. I wrote a piece about this in New York Magazine, and I have another piece coming out about it in Canada's Globe and Mail um, in the next couple of days. But you know, over the last 40 years, there's been surveys, as there is in every country, about the values of the Iranian people, right? So, you know, people like Pew or the World Values Survey, they do surveys around the world to see like what people value, what their religion is, all of that stuff. That's how we get these statistics. Over the last few decades, people like Pew and the World Values Survey have said that Iranians are over 90% Shia Muslim. And this number has been just floating around and accepted. It's been accepted by scholars and spread by the media and just kind of taken to be true. But here's the thing, a lot of people in Iran, especially a lot of those who, I guess, have a regular travel back and forth, and who study sociology or anthropology, you know, and speak to a lot of people have seen that, you know, this doesn't really match with the anecdotal evidence, etc. And, and then 
they ask themselves a question, but can you go and take a survey inside a theocracy when the survey is not anonymous? It depends on not being anonymous. If someone inside a theocracy opens a door and a guy is there saying, I'm surveying with a world value survey, you know, is this so-and-so? Can you please tell me what you value, including your religion? What are you going to say? You're going to say, I'm a Muslim, you know, and if they call you on the phone and they say, you know, what's your religion? Because a lot of these are phone surveys. You again say, I'm Muslim. So there was a couple of researchers in Holland uh, who started an organization called Gaman, and they kind of started the organization with the purpose of doing surveys inside Iran anonymously and safely and having these surveys go viral and then correcting the data after the fact. Because one thing about anonymous surveys is that people self-select and excuse the data, but it's okay because people, a lot of you know major researchers use anonymous surveys now and they just correct the data after the fact. Anyway, they decided to do this. Long story short, their surveys did go viral. They've had several since 2019. They had one in 2023 recently that went hugely viral. And guess what? They have matched the world value survey on every single point except one, and that's religion. Mm. And they're coming up with numbers more along the lines of like in the 40s. People are not majority religious, they are majority secular. And in a survey where they don't feel the need to lie, they're being honest about that. So Iran is diverse and secular and modern and educated population. And even in the rural parts and uneducated sections of the country, they come from a rich literary background with, you know, kind of a, a cultural understanding to be open-minded, to listen to other people, to live and let live. That is the culture of Iranians. And 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 it's not these diehard Muslims, although there are plenty of those too, because again, it's a diverse country. So I think we need to now listen to the people and understand that they just want a free democracy like all of us do. The Muslims want to practice Islam and the Christians want to practice Christianity and the Baha'is want to practice Baha'iism and, 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 and the secular people want to be left alone to be secular. I mean, I, it was very interesting and eye-opening for me. And I think it was an exercise in intellectual humility because again, you know, we are, we, we are supposed to trust the experts and Pew and the World Values Survey are the experts and they gave us these numbers. And I think what's interesting for me is that it taught me that it's not just blatant lies out on the internet stuff that we have to watch out for. We actually do have to scrutinize even the official data that we get and ask ourselves, how was this collected? It would have been a very simple question to ask. Let me ask myself, like, how does Pew or World Value Survey collect this data? Oh, it's not anonymous. Well, then maybe people are lying. It's a very simple question that these two researchers asked before they started their organization. But I think all of us should have asked it. And I think we should ask questions like this when we receive any kind of information, even from expert sources, that's the thing that will protect us from believing all kinds of lies in the world, or even not lies, not blatant lies, but misinformation that comes from badly collected data. Who Gets Believed is published now by Harville Secker. It's really absolutely fascinating. Dana, what else are you up to at the moment? I know you're teaching at St. Andrews as well. Yeah, I teach creative writing at St. Andrews. And I think I am ready to go back to fiction writing. Mm. Um, you know, the last couple of books in the last couple of years have been all about these very difficult subjects and these very real subjects and even, you know, subjects that go back into my own life. And and it's been hard. And I, I miss the part of me that creates and imagines. I miss being funny. I'm going to write a funny play. <laughs> Please. Well, you are very funny. So that would be great. But also what you're doing at the moment is brilliant as well. Where can we follow you on social media? Oh, I'm at Dina Nayeri on Twitter. And I'm also on Instagram and Facebook. And I have a website, dinanayeri.com. 
Brilliant. Dina, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Standard Issue for All Women.